everybody. Welcome to Going for Two, an Extra Points podcast. I am one of your hosts, Matt Brown. I'm the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter, and I'm, I'm thrilled to finally get this podcast off the ground. It's been something that uh, many of you have asked for and has been on my to-do list for, for a long time because there's a lot of topics about these forces that shape college athletics that don't really fit neatly into a 2,000-word newsletter. There's there's different nuance, there's different storylines to, to poke at and, and interviews to have and, and all these different ways to explore these stories. And some sometimes audio is the best way to do that. But I realized that that's a pretty big ask that I can't do by myself. There's a lot of things that I don't know. There's a lot of skill, of skill sets here that I don't know. So I realized that I was going to need to bring somebody else in to help me with this. If we were ever going to get this podcast off the ground, that's why this is going for two and not just the Matt Brown show. Um, so I'm excited to introduce Brian Fisher, my co-host on this project. Brian. How are you? I'm doing well. And I'm like you, I'm excited to get this off the ground because uh, it is a, a lot to talk about uh, in this whole realm of college athletics that uh, are not just limited to the the written word. And uh, I'm excited to get into the weeds a little bit uh, on, on a lot of topics that I think not only interest us, but uh, interest a lot of readers out there. And uh, I, I can't wait to get started. Uh, I, I think we're we're going to go a few different directions over the course of this, but uh, I, I can't wait to get started here. Yeah, it's... Uh... I've joked about this with a, a couple of industry folks that for better or for worse, we have been blessed to live in interesting times. This is not a boring time to be caring about college athletics, not just what we're seeing on the field and on the court, but 2021 might be a really transformational year for college sports in a lot of different respects, not just because not just because of COVID and the enormous financial and political pressures that come with that. But there's a, a couple of other pretty big issues rumbling beneath the surface that I think you and I both expect to come to a head this year. If you go back to some of the radio hits or some of the discussions I had in 2019, I, I pointed towards this kind of 2020, 2021 being perhaps the most foundationally changing couple of years for the NCAA and, and all the member schools, um, really since maybe 1984. You, you look at not only the legislation that's going on, you obviously have external factors in this country from everything raging from obviously COVID to the financial difficulties that a lot of these schools are going through. Uh, you have media rights deals coming up on, on the horizon. Uh, it is just a, a huge amount of change uh, packed into a relatively short amount of time. And what we see coming out of this, uh, I think is going to be fascinating to watch because uh, college athletics is, is frankly never going to be the same. I, I think I agree. And that, that's what I really wanted to focus on for this particular episode. There's, you, you know, you, you mentioned the 1984 case, and there's a couple of other transformational issues throughout all of college athletics history. You know, some of those I, I wrote about a little bit in my book. And those, those are things I think I'd like to use this podcast to dig into a little bit more. But for this episode, I, I thought it might be a good idea to really dig into a couple of those transformational issues that we see coming to a head this year. And, you know, try to dig into the crystal ball a little bit and predict how we think it's going to go. I, I wrote about this a little bit a few weeks ago uh, for extra points, but I, I, I believe some of these issues warrant a little bit of a larger conversation. And I know perhaps none of them are looming larger in the minds of administrators than name, image and likeness, which has, has become a household term uh, in discussing college sports, certainly over the last year. And now it's going to come to a head, we think. Probably, maybe at some point uh, this year, I, Brian, I was thinking maybe I can give everybody just a real quick lay of the land about where we are now, and then we can talk about where we think we're going to be going next. Let's do it, because this is, I think, not only the most talked about subject when it comes to the NCA, but 
Uh, obviously, it's the most newsworthy right now, given everything that is, is going on. And I think it is helpful to kind of look back at, at how far this stretches back into the past, because uh, this has been on the books and, and been on the radar for a lot of people for uh, years now, but it is finally coming to a head and is uh, really kind of at the crux of, of everything the NCAA is trying to do. And a lot of these schools are going to have to react to. Yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, the, the conversation about whether an athlete has any economic value um, and whether they should be allowed to exercise it. I mean, that goes back to, you know, primordial college football, right? You had, we saw, you know, players at Yale and Harvard getting exclusive deals to sell cigarettes back in like 1906. Like we know that these athletes have that value, but how they're allowed to exercise it has changed quite a bit. So I recognize that this is a story that I think Brian and I have been following super closely, and we've been watching a lot of really frustrating congressional hearings and digging into a lot of subcommittees. And uh, thank God, a lot of you have not been doing that. So it can be a little bit tricky to follow the state of play and and where we are with with, with this issue. So to recap, right now, if you are a college athlete under NCAA jurisdiction, you currently don't have the ability to really exercise your name, image, and likeness. You can't enter into an endorsement deal. You can't monetize your YouTube channel. There's a whole litany of bylaws that restrict the kind of money uh, that you're allowed to earn right now as an athlete. And that is almost certainly uh, going to change, uh, in, in part because various states started signing their own laws saying, you can't do this anymore. You probably remember California being the first. LeBron James got involved with that. A lot of other high-profile athletes did. But that bill, as it stands right this second, is not scheduled to go into effect for several years. As I believe, as of this point, there are seven states that have signed similar legislation, California, Colorado, Florida, New Jersey, Nebraska, Michigan. uh, I think I might be missing one. But with the one exception, they're all scheduled to go into effect 2023 or later. The wild card is Florida which is right now scheduled to go uh, into effect July 1st of this year. All of those state laws are slightly different and perhaps different in some significant ways in some places. But the, but the crux of it is the NCAA would not be able to tell an athlete in that state that you can't sign some sort of endorsement deal. The NCAA right now is working on creating some kind of unified rule and also working with Congress to create a national rule that would supersede all of the different states because lots of other states are likely to pass similar legislation. Right here in Illinois, where I'm based, uh, I would say that that is quite likely to happen in 2021. Uh, Brian, I know in your neck of the woods, at least uh, at least one member of your state house has uh, proposed similar legislation. I think it's likely to happen elsewhere in the West. So that's kind of the big question right now. That is, what happens first? Does the NCAA come up with a unified rule? Does Congress create some kind of rule? Does Congress create a rule that extends far beyond name, image, and likeness? What do you see happening? I guess first, did I miss anything from, from that overview? And then second, where are we going next? No, I think that's a good overview. It's kind of strange to think that the start of this kind of happened in the spring of 2019. This is kind of when it really kind of came on everybody's radar. And, uh, you know, very publicly, like you mentioned, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, was on LeBron James' uh, show on HBO signing this legislation. It's hard to think back that far, but um, it has really come come a long ways. And I, I think the timetable has been sped up uh, by the law in Florida. In particular, you mentioned that start date. I think that is the one thing that Everybody almost has a, has a clock, you know, counting down to. And I think there's there's obviously going to be legal challenges. We saw the 
the Department of Justice letter, which got sent uh, in early January that I think uh, obviously put the pause, caused this legislation to be tabled. But for the most part, I think something is going to happen this year. You know, what form it takes is is to be determined. But uh, I think everybody is committed in one way or another from the state level, from the school level, from the NCAA office level, that they will open things up. So that very similar to regular students on campus, you can sell your, your name, image, and likeness and, and use that uh, for commercial benefit. And I think it's important to note that uh, when, when you look on the actual proposals, uh, a lot of this concerns amateurism. That, that's the first word in, in the proposal is, is amateurism designed to uh, address some of those shortcomings, address some of those changes. And, and that is fundamental uh, to the NCA. Whenever you talk about uh, the, the court cases, whether it's been um, uh, certainly O'Bannon, uh, where, where this kind of concept comes into comes into play, uh, a, a lot of it comes down to amateurism and, and the changing definition of that. And so I think everybody agrees uh, that in this modern age, that, that has to be adjusted. And, and I think certainly it will be over the course of uh, 2021. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned here this idea that that definition changes because this is important. And anybody that tries to tell it, like tell you that how we define amateurism was etched on stone tablets and handed down from Mount Sinai or something like it's baloney, right? Amateurism used to mean that the idea of an athletic scholarship would make you not an amateur. And that was true for decades until it was decided that it wasn't. And then we had arguments over whether laundry money would break the sacred bonds of amateurism. And then we decided that was okay. Then it wasn't okay. And then it was okay again. And then courts have changed some things. And you're right. Now it's going to, it's, it's going to evolve. And it has to evolve in large part because this has always been a business, but it's never been a bigger business than it is right now. And athletes are more aware of that than they were back in 1930. So I want to get into what we think is actually going to happen here. Um, And my gut is that the first thing that's going to happen is that we're not actually going to see Florida's law go into effect on July 1st. The U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a case that t- touches on similar issues, the the Alston case, which I'm sure we'll talk about more both on my newsletter and on this podcast in the near future, that will, uh, I think, provide some clarity about to what level the NCAA should be allowed to set caps on potential athlete compensation. And if the court rules that you can't do that at all on it for ed- educational grounds, well, that's going to change a lot about what potential name, image, and likeness legislation is going to look like. If the, if the court rules essentially grants the NCAA an antitrust exemption for educational benefits, that might give the NCAA more freedom to set a more restrictive marketplace. We're probably not going to get an answer from the Supreme Court before July 1st. So I would expect the NCAA to sue uh, to get some kind of injunction or delay from Florida's law to go into effect, at least until the high court rules. We were talking earlier that it was a little bit surprising that they haven't done that already. I remember after the California law was passed, that counsel for the NCAA said, yeah, we think this is unconstitutional. We think this is a this unfairly restricts trade. Um, and to my knowledge, that hasn't been brought yet. But I think we're both in agreement that it would be pretty surprising if nobody tries to sue, at least to give everybody a little bit more time. Right. Well, the, the one constant in all of college athletics is billable hours. Undefeated. Undefeated. That is undefeated. And and I, I think you mentioned the, the timeline. That is crucial, I think. You look back, the NCAA could have gotten ahead of this that for, for years and years and years. Obviously, they are kind of being forced now 
to where that is, that clock is on the table. And uh, you look at, at uh, you mentioned a lawsuit. I, I think it is absolutely going to come at some point. Question is when? I, I would even say, you know, by the end of the quarter, uh, at some point there will be movement or at least hints of movement uh, in terms of that legal maneuvering that the NCAA has to do because that, that July 1st date is coming quickly. Yeah, th- th- there's one constant, I think, from talking to administrators over the last year. Even administrators who I think are really pretty open to name, image, and likeness, I think there's a legitimate generational divide in college athletic leadership between the people that see this as an opportunity and the people that see this as an existential threat. But even the people that see this as an opportunity have mostly told me, we really don't want a world where this is not allowed anywhere but Florida or where it's we have nine different uh, state rules for what this might look like. Now, I've talked to some economists and some other advocates, and they say, well, that's fine. We have different minimum wage laws. We have different laws about FOIA. We have different laws about contract length and a bunch of other financial structures that touch college athletics, and the world hasn't fallen apart. We could we could figure this out. Um, but I, I, I'm a little bit more skeptical of what that might look like on behalf of an actual athlete trying to navigate that Byzantine group, group of rules. So I think there's going to be a unified push to Let's do everything we can to make sure we don't, even if it's only for a month, to secretly let Stetson and South Florida have like a gigantic recruiting advantage, you know? Yeah. And I mean, even the the on the ground kind of kind of day to day issues with name, image and likeness still has not really been sorted out by the NCAA. I mean, this is something that's been studied in committees and, and there is some actual legislation to look at now that obviously was supposed to be voted on in January. And even then, though, if that were to have passed, let's say that had the membership passes that uh, at the NCAA convention in, in mid-January, there was still a lot of legwork to go on this subject. There's the RFP for a third-party administrator to, quote-unquote, manage a lot of this, you know, especially surrounding the rules over what you can and cannot do. D1 Council even man, you know, tweaked some of this language uh, going back in December. So this is still a evolving process, and I think that is important to keep in mind that you know, what we are talking about now and, and what is ultimately going to come to pass in whether it's July, whether it's uh, late August, whether it's even next year, there, there's going to be a lot that kind of morphs and changes as uh, certainly all the parties try to agree on kind of that basic framework and where they go from here. And we, we still have a long ways to go, even if everybody is in agreement that, hey, we, we got to do this now. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, the the administrator angle is actually, I think, a really important point. And if I, you know, if I'm talking to a fan or somebody in this industry, I feel like there's three major things to watch for over these coming months. All right. So one of them is who's actually going to be running this thing? Is it going to be the NCAA? Is it going to be some third party administrator? Is it going to be a subsidiary of Learfield? Is it going to be the FTC, the FCC? Some There's going to be some entity that's going to be charged with theoretically making sure that either athletes are not making too much money, so that they're able to track the amount of money that's coming in so they can you know, produce some kind of study, um, benchmarking. It's going to, you know, to what extent that administrator's duties are will vary depending on what the rules of the marketplace are going to be. But there's going to be some central office, probably not in Indianapolis, and no one knows who that is. So that's one thing to follow. The other thing is to whether Congress, who's definitely going to get involved here, decides to take a very limited way uh, approach or to tack on name, image, and likeness to more holistic college athletics reforms. Because the Senate is now under Democratic control, uh, I think we can pretty safely assume that the legislative approach from Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Roger Wicker, which essentially would have just given the NCAA an antitrust exemption and only dealt with this, that's not going to happen. They don't have the votes. 
And the, the Democratic voices who are most interested in this issue, folks like Cory Booker, former Division One athlete, folks like uh, like like uh, Chris Murphy and Roger Blumenthal in Connecticut, they very much want big college athletics reforms. They want changes in athlete health care. They want changes in uh, university financial reporting. They want revenue sharing. Um, some of those things are going to be completely red lines. They will not be supported by other legislative uh, forces in Congress. But to what extent that debate goes from big to small uh, will be worth monitoring. And then, of course, the third is the, is the Supreme Court, because Congress can debate an antitrust exemption, but the courts might give the NCAA, NCAA one anyway. I think my, my take here is that while I am really optimistic about the future of name, image, and likeness, big picture, I, I, I still legitimately think it's going to be a, a big fi- financial benefit for a lot of athletes outside of football and basketball, particularly women. I don't think very many of them are going to see meaningful changes in 2021. And that regulatory uncertainty is honestly probably really unfortunate for somebody who's just about to start their career. I think a lot of lawyers are going to get paid and we'll probably see something more resembling a real marketplace next year. Does that pass your sniff test? Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think the, the entire process, when, when you talk with, with people on the ground, when you talk to people in Indianapolis, I, I just feel like uh, my, my takeaway is that everybody is totally unprepared for that, that kind of switch yeah. being flipped, you know, um, you know, I, we mentioned the third party administrator not being chosen. Um, even, you know, compliance has a massive amount of questions in terms of how this is being managed. Um, yeah. We've already had some arguments over, well, can they use the school marks and can they not use the school marks and um, just the, the little details, there is still a long ways to go. And in terms of recruiting cycles, everybody's worried about that front in particular. Uh, you know, it is current high school juniors going into high school seniors uh, next year that I, I think really that that's going to be going to be the first wave of guys that can actually take advantage uh, of this law. And yes, it, it's certainly going to affect current uh, people on campus, but I, I think it is going to be another cycle before we really kind of get to uh, what this ultimately is and, and how this ultimately plays out. And I, I think I would be remiss, you know, especially talking to you, um, if we didn't mention group licensing. You know, everybody is focused. Everybody talks about name, image, and likeness. But when you talk to the average fan, what is that connection to this? It's the NCAA video game. Everybody wants NCAA football oh, yeah. back. And, and we're a long ways from, I think, a group licensing situation. You know, we, we do have to kind of figure out NIL first and then kind of look at the group licensing. I know there's been proposals and and, and concepts and, and and talk about, hey, when am I getting my EA video games back? I, I think that even is, yep. is pushed even further down the road because there's, there's frankly so much work to still be done. There's so much work. I mean, I mean the passion behind that game is uh, – Difficult, I think, to overstate, even within our little bubble of college football nerds. Um, I, I bought an Xbox 360 during quarantine just so I can play that game again. And like retail copies of that are, are still going for over 100 bucks um, because they don't make it anymore. And it's, it's not backwards compatible anymore. Right. And I, I joked about this, but I was kind of being serious that if either of the Republicans in the Georgia runoff had decided to stake out a really progressive policy on athlete rights and tie themselves to the video game, that they would have reached a different constituency in that runoff than, than they wouldn't have before. Because that it's a, it's a complete abstract thought to, to so many people. But what happens literally in Congress will have a bigger impact on deciding whether we get a video game in the next five years than almost any other NCAA subcommittee. Um, 
we're, we are a long way. Because e- even if that switch happens tomorrow, like EA is not ready to produce a game tomorrow. They can't just roll out NCAA 14 again. It's It was two consoles ago. Um, I mean, I've been playing Cyberpunk for a minute. I, I know what happens when you rush out a game a little bit too early. I, I don't think that that's what the world wants. No, but I think if if anybody wants to kind of get out ahead of this issue and say, hey, look, I'm going to try to bring your video game, that, that is an instant popularity boost. Uh, I think if the NCAA would do that, almost be wise to say, hey, hey, we, we want to bring back the video game too. And I, I think if you're a school, from, from a marketing perspective alone, uh, you're all about bringing that video game back because I, I think it was, um, you know, maybe it's just a, a little bit of nostalgia or, or thinking back to those games where you could play that game. But um, it, it was such an integral part of, about learning about schools, about learning about yeah. regions of the country, just how college football kind of worked from a not not a granular level, but but kind of from the bigger picture. And um, you know, it, it was fascinating to see um, you know, just how many people who who haven't even played that game still have a connection to it, just from from pop culture and whatnot. And so, I think that is uh, you know a key part of the name, image, and likeness debate is is ultimately for the fan. You know, they, they don't really care about uh, the the guy getting a car dealership. Um, you know, if if your left left tackle is selling an Instagram ad, like that that's not a big thing to the fans out there. But that video game, that's certainly is. And I think we're going to see maybe, maybe more people kind of latch onto that as this debate kind of gets nuanced as we move through the year here. If you are an athletic director or work in compliance or marketing uh, and you take away nothing from this conversation, I am begging you, like, please, please make this a priority, especially now, because, you know, and then I promise we'll move on here. When NCAA 2014 came out, online gaming on the console level was, was in its infancy. Most people didn't play NCAA 14 online. They played it uh, on the couch with their roommates. Mobile gaming wasn't really a thing. The idea of games as a service weren't really a thing. Um, And all of that's changed so much in the last seven years. So the marketing benefits that you got from that game before are going to be immeasurably greater. And especially as so many universities are freaking out right now about how do I you know, access Gen X? How do I reach these younger fans in a new way? Because people don't want the same experience that was so effective from, from Gen X upwards. The video game is where you can do it. Um, and I, I and especially because there's definitely going to be a mobile app. There's definitely going to be uh, you know, a, a companion to this. And that if you want to market your school and your program in a different way, that's how to do it. Please, this it's a, this is a layup. Like there, there, many people are going to ask you to do difficult things that you don't want to do over the next two years. You want to do this, um, so we'll, we'll we'll definitely be interested to see where those changes go. There's an, an, the other bit of landmark legislation that honestly I was a little bit surprised to see get tabled was about the uh, one-time transfer rule. Right, so uh, most most college athletes don't have to sit out a year if they transfer. Um, it's basketball and I think hockey and a couple of football and a couple of other sports have this restriction. And this particularly comes to light. I think right now, I mean, we're recording just a couple of hours after Tennessee made a coaching search. So you just had a bunch of athletes sign a letter of intent. And now they're locked into a school to a, a coach that I thought was going to be there and he's gone. And now they'd, they'd likely have to sit out a year if they want to go reopen their recruitment process again. Um, all signs seem to be pointing to that legislation being uh, moving in a direction that would allow a one-time transfer. Brian, what the hell happened? 
And and when is this going to get fixed? Because I'm tired of writing about it. I, I am too. And I'm tired of talking with coaches and, and trying to coach them through it as well. I mean, you look at at what happened and it was almost tacked on to kind of that name, image and likeness letter from, from the Justice Department saying there were some antitrust concerns. But I, I think ultimately those are minor in, in the grand scheme of things when it comes to this legislation. I ultimately expect it to pass at some point in the next yeah. couple of months. I think everybody else does. I mean, you're, you're looking at movement into the port itself. And I think from coaches, administrators, um, they all expect either waivers to be granted at some point in the near future, um, depending on how, how this goes and, and what the timing is. But I think everybody wants to see this. Everybody knows this is going to happen. Ultimately, you know, the, the timing is just what is up in the air. Um, I, I don't think they necessarily need to tweak much of the legislation to comply with the antitrust concerns. I mean, this is pretty simple. Uh, all, all, all things considered, you, you enter your name in the portal, you're free to transfer wherever. Um, you're able to play right away. And I think there are some larger concerns with regards to scholarships and, and how the, all that works. But uh, frankly, that is all tied up in, in cases like Alston and what happens with that. So I'm hopeful that we find a resolution to this. I, I think it could potentially come as early as this summer, um, if, if not uh, you know, short, shortly thereafter. It seems like there's going to be waivers passed there. It would be interesting once we get to this point to get some real data to potentially inform other regulations about roster limits. Um, or about how many athletes you can take in, in a size and in, in, in a class. I'm, I'm sure you're hearing this from coaches. The, the bigger concerns that I'm hearing right now are less about, oh my gosh, if we let this happen, we're just going to get recruited over by big schools. It's more of, well, if this happens, do I have the capacity to replenish my roster? And what does this mean for my APR, which is also going to get blown up or some of those other um, backend things? I, I, I believe outside of the most old school complaining kind of coaches, the, the concerns about this, like ruining everything are, are a little bit overblown. Um, you're, you're already trying to re-recruit your players on your roster right now anyway. Yeah. I mean, you look at uh, Dabo Swinney, um, you know, he, he's made some staff changes recently kind of with an eye towards yeah. uh, bringing in one-time transfers. And, uh, you know, a lot of coaches have, have adapted a similar model, but that's a place if, if you go down to Clemson, a very, very familiar atmosphere. Um, you know, he, he does not, typically have, have taken transfers in the past. And, and a lot of coaches are like that. They they want to recruit those those four and five-year uh, athletes out of high school, and, and that's been their focus for a long time. But uh, I think coaches across the country have understood that, um, you know, think the landscape is changing. And, you know, it, everybody talks about this being free agency and, and all the concerns that uh, come with that. But you, you look at it uh, from a larger perspective. It's also good for those lower level schools who maybe a guy doesn't work out at a power five program, but he's still a good player and he can transfer back. And you look at SMU's success yeah. recently, getting guys back from that Dallas area who maybe left there uh, for other programs that they found a lot of success in the portal with those transfers. I, I would imagine a place like USF. Uh, they're going to be heavy uh, in terms of those transfers. Uh, a lot of those places make a lot of sense. And, and that's not even counting the guys that kind of yo-yo back and forth between uh, just trying to find playing time. And I, I think you're going to see kind of take a while to settle out. And, and really the, the worst part about all of it is that coaches already see that roster crunch coming from seniors coming back because they got that extra year due to COVID. You know, the, the roster management issues, uh, I think, are very much prevalent before the one-time transfer uh, legislation is even, even considered. And uh, yeah. you throw that on top of it, and it, it's going to make for a mess from compliance folks, yeah. from 
you know, the associated ADs, it, it's going to take a while to kind of sort out. And I would imagine the, the counter legislation that comes out of this one-time transfer to really be the focus um, starting in August and, and going forward is how do we adjust those numbers to where schools can replenish from the portal, you know, whatever it might be, that they can make those adjustments down the road. There was some appetite for these kind of, that's this kind of reform even before COVID. The most famous example is Kansas, right? where you had a roster that you know, went heavy on JUCOs and a lot of those athletes left before their eligibility completed. Before you know it, you, are, you might be allowed to have 85 scholarships, but you've only got 50-something people on scholarship. And if you can only take 25 a year, it might take four or five seasons of everything going right just to get back to 85. When we joke about Kansas running an FCS roster, we're not just joking about particular athletes at Kansas not being particularly good at football. I mean, like, literally – they might have close to the same number of scholarship football players as like a Missouri Valley team. Like it literally is an FCS roster with a few four stars in there. Um, and that's, that's a big concern. Um, and, and they're not the only, I think they're the, the most prevalent school, but UCLA and Arizona state, I think the past couple of years would go into seasons under 75 and um, they don't really have an immediate opportunity to get back to numbers. Um, Beforehand, I, I think the Mid-American Conference was even interested in this legislation. So I don't think we're going to see a resolution for that this year, but I agree. That's really the next step in this conversation. It's not can we prevent or restrict recruit uh, transfers. It's how can we then get back to an equitable number of guys on the team? And, and I think if you talk to some of the, the people that have really studied this this issue you know, a lot of it uh, has been, you know, let's, let's, let's pass the legislation and kind of study how that roster goes and, and then make adjustments to the counters. I, I think that's been thrown out the window just based on everybody getting the extra year because of COVID based on those, those changes. I think that that'll ultimately um, will almost have to be tagged on to this, you know, one-time transfer uh, rule is they're, they're going to have to act somewhat quickly in terms of adjusting those counters, adjusting those roster limits. And, and I think it's an interesting time for that because you you're hearing a lot of talk now, especially, especially after Alabama won the national title again from both media members, uh, certainly from fans. Maybe we need to lower those scholarship limits. Well, that, that's taking away opportunities for a lot of the athletes. And I think that is uh, ultimately not going to end up happening. But uh, with these adjustments in numbers, I think that could dovetail uh, you know, nicely in terms of this conversation. The roster number conversation, I realize, may not be the sexiest thing in the world, but it matters a ton, um, particularly for G5 programs or lower P5 programs and how quickly a rebuilding team can turn things around. I imagine um, the, the both the, the, all sides of this argument are going to be reoccurring themes in this podcast and, and in the newsletter, which I, I want to quickly take a quick break here and, and talk about. Uh, there's a pretty good chance you are familiar with the Extra Points newsletter. That's what I write. Uh, that is the, the print companion to, to this, uh, this entity here that really wants to focus on the off-the-field forces that shape college athletics, not just college football, although we do write about college football quite a bit, but that includes what's going on with the name, image, and likeness. It includes a, a really deep looks at how athletic departments make money and how they spend that money. Um, there includes conversations with academics, researchers, advocates, and everybody else in this whole complicated world to better explain what goes on with, with their uh, portion of college athletics and why it matters to you as a fan. Um, we're able to do this podcast and I'm able to do a lot of the work that I do right now through this newsletter because people help support it. And if you become a paid subscriber, you get 
not only all of this audio, this beautiful free audio content, you get four extra points newsletters a week and access to a special Discord chat room with all of our other subscribers to talk about what's going on throughout the day and to talk with each other. That's been one of the coolest things about starting this newsletter is then seeing my readers talk to each other and learn about college wrestling and learn about women's basketball and I didn't know anything about Division II anything when I started this project. That wasn't really a thing in Ohio where I grew up. Uh, now I know quite a bit. And I know that from just listening to and reading my own uh, my own subscribers. And so if you are just coming to Extra Points right now, or you've been a reader and you're on the fence and you're listening to this podcast, I got a deal for you. Because with this special discount code, you can go get a 20% off uh, discount to your Extra Points subscription. All you got to do is go to www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. That's spelled G-O-F-O-R two, like the number two. Um, if you type that into your uh, in your browser, you're going to get 20% off discount code for either an annual or a monthly subscription. It typically uh, is seven bucks a month or 70 bucks a year. And that helps make all of this stuff possible. So if you're on the fence and you're interested in these topics, think you'd like Extra Points, uh, take advantage of that discount code. I also want to talk to you about um, one of our first sponsors here. It's an old colleague of mine at SB Nation um, who started up a creative services agency here called Season Media. Um, if you are looking to get your season started, enhanced, or captured this year, uh, Season Media LLC is the partner for you. This is a creative agency founded uh, here by, by, uh, by Stephen Michael that's based on the knowledge of tech and media combined. They're currently taking bookings for folks looking for help for their graphic design, web design, social media, and creative strategy. Uh, you can text 929-224-4315 for more information or head to www.sznmedia.co. Uh, you can follow Stephen Michael at uh, Twitter, SCN underscore CEO. I've worked with Stephen at uh, Mid Major Madness when we were both at SB Nation. I followed his work for HBC you game day. Uh, I think he has a great eye for storytelling. He really understands how to how to supplement those stories visually very well. And if you're particularly if you're if you're in the East Coast, I think he's based in Baltimore, um, looking to elevate your brand. He may be somebody worth talking to. If you are interested in getting uh, some of your ads, uh, want to reach our audience, which includes thousands of not just passionate fans of college athletics, but decision makers and influencers within college athletics, um, shoot me an email at sales at extrapointsmb.com, and we can discuss a sponsorship package that works for you, both on the newsletter and in this podcast. Brian, there's another huge thing that's happening right now completely unrelated to NCAA legislative stuff. And it's something that I've kind of stumbled into in my career that I've realized that no matter how mundane or how small those changes are, there is a segment of the internet that absolutely loves it. And I'm talking about conference realignment and it's back. It's not back like Texas is back necessarily. Like I'm not necessarily talking about, uh, you know, the PAC 12 becoming the PAC 16, but this is a year where we've already seen some pretty substantial changes at the FCS level, and we might be seeing some big change, some potential changes, maybe even some big changes at the FBS level uh, in, in the near future. The, the, the school that everyone seems to be talking about right now is Boise State. What's, what's the latest or what's the situation right now with Boise and potentially leading the Mountain West? 
Now, first of all, this story kind of goes back to some emails that uh, a lot of the local outlets in Boise uncovered with their former head coach, Brian Harson, uh, who is now at Auburn, and, and some of the administrators there about a, a potential move to the AAC. If you think back, and it does seem like it was a long time ago. The internet has ruined both of our senses of time, but it really wasn't objectively that long ago. Yeah, I mean, you, you go back to the summer, really, when yeah. the Mountain West was considering to either, you know, play or not play this this past fall. And, uh, you know, there was interest, at least in, in terms of moving conference affiliations, not just to play this fall, but in terms of what would be right for that Boise State football program. And, well, you know, obviously the, the American is, is down a member. You know, UConn is, is no longer a football-playing school in that league. And so um, there is at least an opening Boise State has always kind of been central to realignment rumors at the FBS level. Um, I think not just from their their past success uh, on the football field, uh, the amount of focus that they put into their football program overall, but you know, really they're kind of an outlier uh, along with BYU on the West Coast or at least the Western part of the United States in terms of you know finding that home. They have aspirations of, of making it into that Power Five level at some point. And while I think there are discussions to be had uh, between Boise State and others, I think the thing to keep in mind with with everything going on around realignment nowadays is not just football, which is a driver, obviously, but where do my other sports land? And I think that's what the question that Boise State, San Diego State has been thrown out there in port from Yahoo Sports and uh, connecting them to the American. Uh, It's all about as much as you want to play football, you know, the fact of the matter is it is not realistic in this day and age to send your volleyball team from, you know, San Diego to Florida to play a volleyball match. That is just not feasible uh, to play a conference game like that. And so where those other Olympic sports, um, you know, live, uh, I know there's been discussions with the Big West. Um, certainly the WCC is out there. I, I think it's, it's all fascinating because we do see the cycle spinning up. And, and I am very curious to see whether Boise State really starts to push this or with a new head coach in, in Andy Avalos, whether they kind of back off that a little bit, ha- having gone through the season and actually played in 2020. You, you bring up something that I, I think is important to really reiterate in this process, because for a lot of people who were on the internet during the last big round of, of FBS realignment, a lot of that conversation centered around the concept of markets. A school becomes an attractive conference edition if it's in a big television market. You want to add schools in big markets because that means more eyeballs on TV, which gives you more money. And that is was true in some cases, like Rutgers was a really attractive candidate to the Big Ten, despite being bad at most sports, because it did represent a lot of eyeballs in New York, a market where the Big Ten already has a ton of grads, and the Big Ten has a television station, um, a television channel, which then, by virtue of being in that market, could be on basic cable and essentially tax everybody in New York that has TV, um, whether they want to watch Rutgers or not, and made the conference a bunch of money. That's not the case for a lot of other leagues. There's no Mountain West or, for that matter, no American Athletic TV network. You can have access to large markets, but if those markets don't drive actual eyeballs, you're not actually making any more money. There's already a couple of big TV markets within the Mountain West, but really – Outside of a little tiny bit of San Diego State and a little bit of Air Force, none of those programs outside of Boise have the ability to drive eyeballs at all. That That's why Boise State makes more money than anybody else in that league. That's why they were able to negotiate preferential treatment because that has a, they have a, a brand reach far beyond just the, the just Boise. It's why BYU is an attractive television brand because there are LDS folks 
all over the country and especially all over the Pacific and mountain time zones. So when you, when you start figuring out, okay, well, they, you know, this school should go here or the, this conference should do, should do what? The idea of, of television markets being a primary factor or the most important factor does not work in 2021. The single biggest thing that has come up in almost every interview that I've had and a bunch of stuff that I've read, especially from these smaller leagues, is we have got to find a way to save money on travel. Exactly what you said. It does not make sense for Olympic sports to be traveling across the country, even if that helps your football program. We have to find ways to do regional regional scheduling. Um, what that can, I feel very confident saying here is Boise State is absolutely not going to play any other sports in the league if they got to share it with Idaho. So we can just forget the big sky as a possible option at all. Because if you want to talk about hatred, <laughs> some good old fashioned, really bad feelings. And we talk about the Egg Bowl and we talk about the Iron Bowl and the Holy War for those. Don't sleep on Idaho and Boise State, particularly at like the administrative level. It's not going to happen. If I had to make a, predict- a prediction here, I actually do think Boise leaves the, the Mountain West potentially this year, if not then shortly thereafter. I think a lot of these sources of tension um, can't really be easily resolved. Like This is a program whose aspirations and budget and goals and influence have really outgrown the rest of the league. The gap between what Boise can do right now and what UNLV and New Mexico can do right now is enormous. And if you can't reconcile that within the league, and given that they nearly sued each other a couple of months ago, I'm guessing probably not, then your options are the American or independent, which is I actually think Boise could probably pull off better than almost any other G5 in, uh, school. So that's worth watching. I don't I mean, I don't know if the destination is the Big West. Um, which uh, I expect to be to have an open spot since I think UC Riverside is going to get out of Division One athletics this year. Um, it could be the WAC, um, uh, which would be kind of a, a fun full circle thing here for Boise State. That's been the centerpiece right now at the FCS realignment front, as uh, Extra Points readers have been familiar with, because they're back in the football game, baby. And they might be, uh, you know, who knows, in a couple of years might be even bigger in the football game. They have uh, uh, just added a bunch of new schools and will start an FCS football league um, this fall. Um, And uh, as a condition, all of the schools that are joining, a couple in Utah, a couple here in Texas, they're going to at least study moving up to the FBS. And I can tell you, they're not the only league trying to do that right now. It's going to be fascinating to see and the the landing spot for Olympic sports and, and whether there can be real structural changes to the NCAA level. I, I think that's going to be fascinating to track not only in 2021, but kind of going forward is is whether we have almost, if you go back to the MPSF uh, out west, which was originally conceived as essentially a home for a lot of those Olympic sports from Pac-12, Mountain West type programs that those two conferences didn't sponsor, but they, they wanted to save on travel costs. They wanted to stick out West. Now that is kind of grown unwieldy. You look at the Pioneer League um, in, in, at the FCS level in football. I mean, that is stretching from San Diego to New York to Florida. I mean, it, it is crazy. what all yeah. this kind of It's a, a non-scholarship airplane conference, but like bad. Yeah, and, and so I, I think I'm I'm kind of curious to whether we see almost uh, we, we take those kind of regional national models and, and whether they kind of spin back into more of a regional focus. And I think that's something to kind of keep an eye on. I, I think that, you know, you look at administrators, you look at conference commissioners, they, they would love that. Um, you know, I, I think if you took it from a 30,000 foot view 
and yeah. said, Hey, you know, this is our Pacific Northwest conference. And, you know, you're only, but you're really a bus league and you go back to being kind of bus leagues um, for those Olympic sports. I, I think that could really spurn a lot of changes, even at the FBS level. And you mentioned Boise state. I, I think you, you're right. I think that of the group of five programs that could go independent right now, I think they have as an attractive a case as, as anybody because they are willing to go uh, down to the SEC and play schools that, you know, they have no problem really kind of taking on that mantra of we will play anybody anywhere. And I think they've seen some of the success that uh, BYU has, has had uh, on this road. While it's been rocky at times, um, you know, there have been some benefits to it. And I think Boise state looks at it in a more secure position than someone like San Diego state. But uh, I think there's going to be a massive amount of change in terms of realignment at kind of the lower levels and the mid levels of, of kind of division one and, and going down to the FCS level in particular. Yeah, I, I've no, I've long been a proponent of sports-specific regional leagues. When you, when you looked at the at the crosstabs of the Big Night Commission study from a couple of months ago, you see some presidents and conference commissioners even you know say that this might be a bad idea. It's worked for college hockey, it's worked uh, for college volleyball in, in a couple of other leagues. But my understanding right now is that the the group of people who are most opposed to that are conference commissioners, particularly for conference conference commissioners of, of maybe like the top eight leagues. Like I remember I asked Mike Oresco about this later in the summer. I said, like, hypothetically, what if Cincinnati came to you? Not a very good college baseball program. And they said, we want to play in the MAC, which, you know, is not a bad college baseball program, but then you can have a bus league and you can have weekday games and everything uh, because we don't want to keep sending our teams down to Tulsa and South Florida. And then you guys can then you know, take our, our spot and offer an affiliate deal to somebody else in North Carolina um, who's closer in that footprint and is more committed to that sport. So like, I would think, well, everybody wins in this scenario. Cincinnati gets to save money and has a better chance of making the postseason. The American can become a multi-bid league again and, and get a better team. And he said, Oresco told me that they would not be interested in something like that. If you're if you're in it, you're in it for everything. Could I see the A Sun or the South? Well, not maybe not the South now, but or, or some other like league around at that level potentially doing something like this for like lacrosse? Sure, like that that that's that's definitely possible. I, I do want to kind of quickly springboard off something else you mentioned there about reclassifications and realignments that's happening at the G5 and FCS level, because this is definitely happening. And what I'm kind of seeing right now at the FCS level, it reminds me a little bit of like the early 1990s when basically all of the leagues were, were, were changing. And, you know, then um, as a, that was because everybody wanted to maximize their television revenue. And what I'm seeing now, when I'm hearing at the FCS level, which I think is important to remember, nobody's making a lot of money at this stage, right? Your biggest TV deals at the FCS level, even if you're, you're a North Dakota or a Montana or a James Madison, it's like 400 grand. It's not, it's like a, it's not even as much as like the bad conference USA deal. And you're not selling 60,000 tickets. So no one's trying to maximize revenue as much as they are trying to limit how much money they're losing. And so they're trying to find leagues where you have shared institutional fit do I spend our athletic budgets the same? Do we care about sports the same way? And what can we do to, to minimize travel? So we were already seeing this change here in the WAC. And with the divisional structure with the WAC, a lot of these Texas schools are really going to be able to save some money on travel. And the schools out in the in the Utah area are going to be able to sell more tickets. We're going to, we're seeing this right now with the A-Sun, which I expect to be an FCS football league in the next year as well. They're going to add Central Arkansas. They're going to add uh, Eastern Kentucky. They're going to add Jacksonville State. They're going to find their way to get a sixth, maybe seventh and eighth program uh, in, in the near future. 
and, and they're going to be looking at doing th- these things the same way. And I think you can look at even a very strong league like the Colonial could split or could see some significant change in that front for exactly this reason. Schools trying to create uh, environments for themselves where they have uh, where they're saving money on travel and being around schools that share more things in common with them, even if that's a worse league um, uh, as far as football is concerned. Because if you got to trade, hey, if, if I could shave off 750 grand off my budget in exchange for maybe making the FCS playoffs one less time over five years, they're going to they're gonna save the money. Um, whereas you wouldn't see that, I think, at the FBS level. You know, I'm from Texas originally, and, and being a child of the, the 80s and 90s, I uh, love the Southwest Conference. <laughs> And, and that concept of, you know, a Texas only league, obviously they had Arkansas involved as well, makes so much more sense nowadays than, than it did back, you know, when it broke up. You, you look at that kind of concept and maybe it's not just for football, but it is for those Olympic sports. It would take a little bit of fortitude for a lot of these schools, a lot of people to really put that kind of national and, and regional interest uh, above what's what's happening on the local level. And that, that may, maybe is the biggest detriment to kind of mass realignment changes to affect that bottom line because everybody's looking out for their own. Uh, everybody is, is kind of really focused on, you know, ha- how does this move help me? Uh, leaks, they, they don't want to break apart or, uh, you know, go through these structural changes that I think ultimately are needed, um, which kind of really is kicking the can down the road. And, and I think this is reinforcing the issue from a national level, the, the concept of leadership and, and how it is just not there from a national level. This is what is going to be best for this sport. This is what's going to be best for these schools, uh, you know, across a division. And, and yet it's just, there, there's not kind of that impetus to really push towards a, the, these regional leagues. And, you know, schools are, are still going to keep pursuing that FBS. You, know, you mentioned North Dakota State. I think that's school, a school that, you know, frankly, is going to heavily look at it uh, in, in the very short term in terms of making that move. We're, we're seeing, I think, more and more independent programs at the FBS level. You know, UMass has struggled. Certainly UConn is, is going there own way. You know, I, I'm curious if that is at least the the opening of the doors uh, for some of these FCS leagues to say, hey, maybe we can at least make the move. Yeah, you, that's actually the last thing I think I want to mention on this, because this is a um, misconception that I hear from a lot of fans about who should move up or who is going to move up or what, what's the thought process behind there. And the conventional wisdom might be, well, if you're, if you're, if you're just destroying everybody at the FCS level, if you've been a very successful program, then you would look at moving up. And in the case of North Dakota state, I, I, I do think that is actually part of it where they've so thoroughly dominated this level and have now kind of reached a financial cap of what they can achieve that maybe there's an opening. And I've been hearing more from people close to that market that that's, more of a possibility now than it was maybe 10 years ago. But we also see programs that suck <laughs> at the FCS level that decide to move up, um, you know, or programs that never really enjoyed a whole lot of success. Uh, and w- what goes into this is much more than just athletic success, but it really is about institutional mission and commitment, right? When you move up to FBS, almost certainly you are not going to be competing for anything super meaningful within a decade, maybe, maybe more. Um, by meaningful, I'm talking about something bigger than like the, the GoDaddy Bowl, right? I'm talking about like, you know, top 25s and everything. Um, although that could happen eventually. It's more about a marketing benefit. So if you are a school that is really trying to aggressively grow enrollment and is really trying to grow a state enrollment and you have the institutional and political backing from, you know, your, your, your system president and everything, and you're only an okay team, but you're committed to, to increase your budget by $10 million, you might decide to move up. Like an example of this is a school that's uh, made no secret about wanting to be an FBS program is Eastern Kentucky. 
which has not been an elite SES program in a while. But they have the, the political will uh, to, to potentially make that change. You look at some of these schools in Montana, which have been really good and have big fan bases, are not really as interested. James Madison's not really as interested unless they can get into the American. Um, it, you know, those changes don't make as much financial sense. So I, I know that right now, both there may be athletic directors and people within the ASUN and the WAC and some of those institutions that are talking about moving up to FBS. I feel pretty comfortable telling everybody right now, if anyone says we want to be an FBS school in two years, they're saying that to impress recruits and establish themselves as a school where that might happen. It's not happening tomorrow. Like in order for anybody to make this transition, they're going to have to make pretty significant facility improvements. And this is a tough time to do that, especially if you're in Texas. I mean, maybe you want to wait to see if oil rebounds a little bit before you decide to figure out how you're going to finance a $10 million stadium renovation, or you want to see um, what the federal government's going to do for student loan bailouts or for other you know, economic changes. You might want to see what your credit rating is going to be in a little bit. Those are These, these are big debts that you want to take on at an uncertain time to do it. You don't even know what Division One is going to look like in 10 years. So... I don't really think anyone's going to make that jump immediately. I think a lot of schools are going to start thinking about studies, but you don't have to be a good school to be thinking about that. It's just, it's a more of a realization of, well, are my peers making this jump? Am I going to be in a more tenuous situation in eight years than I might be if I, if I stayed put? Um, and do I have the money and support and backing to move up? And that goes all the way down even to division two. Like, you know, you're, 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 a, you were a Texan guy, right? There's, there's a lot of schools in Texas that might be moving up to Division One, in part because their conference could become less stable very soon. If you are a Division Two school in Washington State or Oregon, you have to have conversations about moving up or moving down because staying put is not really going to be an option for you anymore. And that's going to be true, I think, even at the FCS level as well. So and don't be shocked if you hear about some schools and you think, like, who the hell is that thinking about reclassifying right now? It isn't because they're necessarily trying to be Alabama. It's just because the rug's being pulled out from under them and they have to make some kind of change. And, and I think it's interesting coming off the season that we just had in, in football, you look at Coastal Carolina's success and how quickly they've not only made that jump, but been competitive. And it is a different landscape now from transfers. We're talking about name, image, and likeness. We're talking about financial pressures. Um, you know, this is, like we said earlier, just kind of start this podcast and, and, and bringing it back around. This is a, a monumental shift and, and change at the NCAA level, and, and it affects all schools. And we're seeing these schools that uh, do see those success stories, the, the Appalachian states of the world that have been able to almost seamlessly transition from FCS to FBS uh, and make an impact. Uh, that, that's not going to happen for everybody. But when you look at some of the ancillary benefits that those schools got from that move, everybody's kind of looking at that and say, yeah, you know, we're on, we're on the national radar more. And we are able to attract a bigger student body, a more diverse student body. And I think you couple that with certain changes in Washington, what's going on. I mean, there's been a lot of talk um, from this this administration and and those around it in terms of you know schools you know and, and education policy and uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to track how these college presidents react to not only what's going on in Washington but what's what's also going on at a a local and regional level in terms of those pressures and not just to compete on the field but compete off of it as well. I, I think I, I want to get you out of here on this. The, the, those the central legislative changes and the literal alignment changing. Um, we're going to see some clarity about that this coming year. Um, I think th th those are going to be bigger changes than we're used to seeing on the NCAA bylaw front and the alignment front for coming in 2021. But the pandemic has brought along a bunch of changes, a lot of them pretty crappy, 
but but some of them not necessarily so bad. I'm I'm wondering from your vantage, what are some of the things that you see about this year sticking with us, even as we head into whatever the heck a new normal is supposed to be, ideally after folks have been vaccinated uh, coming into this fall? I, I just think connectivity. I mean, you look at mobile ticketing. Um, you know, that is something that a, a trend that has progressed over the last couple of years with the pandemic that was uh, almost accelerated. That's something that, um, you know, all schools, um, if they were not there already, are, are considering, you know, ticketless venues. How do we reach new marketing opportunities? I mean, you just look at what the NBA did down, down in the bubble where they were bringing in virtual fans. That's something that a lot of schools did this year, uh, not just the, the cardboard cutouts, but really involving people you know, from home in, into what was actually happening in venue. And I think that is going to continue. And you look at the, the recruiting aspect, just the way coaches uh, without having guys on campus were able to take them through virtual tours and, and, and really connect over FaceTime and Zoom. Um, that sort of stuff is going to keep continuing, um, not just the, the head coach or the assistants or those kind of recruiting uh, staffers that uh, at each school that are connecting with guys on a daily basis, but while that's always been the case these last couple of years as, as technology has increased, I think it has, you know, guys are going to want to jump on Zoom every once in a while. And, and so it's going to be interesting to see how everybody kind of navigates that as well. The, uh, the online ticketing angle is, is interesting. I remember talking on the phone with a, a couple of individuals at, at mid-major um, ticketing departments. And I was working on this for a story I haven't written yet, but it was uh, I was curious to see what, what they're all doing now that they're not really selling tickets. And the consensus response I got was, Matt, we're busier than we've ever been. And a large part of it has been that conversion, which can be challenging for older fans, which I didn't really realize. Just about everyone's season ticket base is super old. Um, but also, what can we do then to create experiences to help connect with people at home? I, I think you're right. I'm not exactly sure if everybody's going to go ticketless or, or remove paper, especially because in college, there's a commemorative angle to that that maybe there isn't on some other markets. But the idea of normalizing the, the virtual golf scramble, the idea of, of, like, of normalizing donor outreach and fan outreach in ways that they hadn't before um, – you know, to maintain those relationships, because that's so much of what revenue generation actually is. It's just relationship management. I think that's going to happen. I think a lot of the meetings, you're right, that that people typically used to slept all over the country for, um, whether that's recruiting or or conference meetings or, or you know, legislative stuff, they're just going to do it over Zoom. And I, I think a lot of leagues that, that cover that canceled a lot of executive travel this year realized we didn't really need it. Like, are people still going to go to like the coaches convention and and try to you know fill thousands of people in there once they're allowed to? Yes, like th that I think will happen. But you're going to see and that's an easy way to to cut costs. Um, one change that I don't think is going to happen as quickly as I think a lot of fans would like is with scheduling. One of the few moments of real joy of this last football season was that BYU Coastal game, right? And it felt to me so joyous because it felt very college football. Here are two kind of unique off the beaten path football programs. They got funky uniforms. They're playing on teal field. Their offenses are both very different. And also we, we whipped the whole thing together in like a 36 hours. And the guy started driving the truck across the country before we even knew the game was happening. And of course you and I, we look at this and think, well, of course you can do that. We don't have to schedule games. Like our, our kids are both, I don't even think they're both potty trained yet. Right. And like there's games scheduled out right now for when they're going to start college. And that feels dumb. I don't think that trend is going to reverse itself so quickly. I, it would be nice if people looked at that and realized Maybe we don't need to schedule games 20 years in the future. Maybe we should give ourselves a little bit of wiggle room. 
I I expect that's a little bit farther down the line before it actually happens. That also might be a little bit of a, a generational shift, and, and, and with athletic directors realizing that uh, you know, it's cool to win the headline now, but if you're not going to be alive to see it, or if you don't know have any idea who any of the coaches are going to be, maybe it has a little bit less value. That would be a welcome change. I don't see it happening immediately. Well, I, I would kind of follow that up as as well. When we talk about uh, massive changes, playoff expansion was something that started before the pandemic, but it is like I was saying, accelerated by it. Um, we already saw Larry Scott in the in the Pac-12 kind of make their case to the management committee that they should have expanded it this year. I, I think the discussions between those running the sport of college football and and ESPN and some of the other stakeholders, uh, I think that's going to continue. Everybody kept saying this is this is going to happen at the end of the contract. If there's going to be any expansion, oh, it's it's going to occur uh, off in the distance. I, I no longer think that is the case. I think everybody sees the financial windfall that it, it could bring. They they see that it would bring more of a national focus to the sport that is badly needed. As certainly fan interest has fallen off in parts of the country, and, and I think that is going to be uh, continue to be accelerated. Uh, I, I think everybody sees what. It, what ultimately is going to happen, why not ha- make it happen now? And I think that those talks, maybe it doesn't happen in 2021, but I think, you know, looking at 2022 and, and beyond, I think it's something that is is going to happen sooner rather than later. And, and that's not something that I would have said after talking with people, you know, prior to last summer. I, I think I think I'm with you. The, the idea of what needs to be done eventually should be done immediately is not a commonly held view in my experience in college athletics administration or in media administration. Um, but perhaps the financial situation has gotten so dire that it actually will, will, will push that inertia a little bit. Um, I, 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 this is, this has been a good conversation. I, I hope that this helps kind of show, put a little bit more light on a couple of these, of these big issues here. I can tell you in the near future, this podcast is going to take a closer look at some of the other historical jumping off points. Uh, certainly the, the regions be Oklahoma, perhaps even earlier in that, that explain why the world is the way that it is now. Uh, I, we have a couple other shows that I'm really excited to get into that I'm not quite ready to announce yet, but we will soon. Um, in the meantime, you can uh, follow this feed on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, and virtually everywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you have uh, story ideas or questions, comments, um, beyond leaving reviews on your podcast delivery service of choice, you can also find me at Matt at extrapointsmb.com. And again, if you are interested in business inquiries, that is sales at extrapointsmb.com. Brian, where can people find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter and other social media platforms at Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. That is all very important to spell it out. I know it is a complicated name. (laughs) Don't want to get confused with any other Brian Fishers on the internet, right? Definitely not. And especially at this point in the year, you look at uh, the, the spelling is important. I know it's tough for everybody with with the uh, two different last names from from what we're used to. But um, you know, follow me on Twitter, and that is usually the best place to to catch all of my work. And uh, I I can't wait to continue this this conversation and and uh, really explore some of those topics in, in greater detail that uh, I think everybody you know kind of wants to hear about and and really wants to explore as well with us. Uh, Brian, listen, as the internet's second most famous Matt Brown writing about college football nerdery. I know what it's like to be confused for somebody else on the internet. It can be frustrating sometimes. Sorry, Matt. I love you. Um, friends, it's, it is, it's been a pleasure. This has been the Going for Two podcast year with Extra Points. Um, until next time, we'll see you next week.